Welcome to Pensive Series. Salim Ismail is a sought-after speaker, strategist, and entrepreneur. His last company, Angstro, was acquired by Google in August 2010. Salim spent two years as SU's founding executive director and currently serves as its global ambassador, focusing on the global presence of Singularity University. Prior to that, Salim was a vice president at Yahoo and the head of Brickhouse, Yahoo's internal ideas factory, where game-changing ideas were brought in, built, and launched. He's also the author of Exponential Organization, which is required reading at the world's top organizations. Salim consults on innovation and growth and believes if you aren't disrupting your business or industry, someone else will. In this episode, Salim shares his technological and philosophical insights on how we can move the world forward. Where did you grow up? Uh, I'm originally from India. I grew up in a, to a diplomatic family in Bombay until I was 10 years old. And then my parents emigrated to Canada. So I did most of my schooling and university in Canada. Uh, uh, it was too cold and boring, so I moved. I went to Europe for 10 years, and I've been in the U.S. for 15 years. So I'm pretty confused overall. <laughs> so how was it growing up in, in those environments? Um, you know, I've had I've lived in now in eight different countries for more than a year each. So I have a I've been moving most of my life uh, since I was 18. And so I've kind of got, gotten used to living in different places. Uh, Canada was a fabulous place to go to school and be safe and etc. cetera. Uh, India was um, kind of a magical place to be a child. Um, I have a theory that most of the successful Indian CEOs like Satya Nadella, etc., the reason that they're so good at what they do is in India, at the age of two years old, you have to learn how to navigate very complex political human relationships because you have these big extended families. And if you say hello to that aunt in front of that cousin, you're not going to get any sweets because they're having a fight or whatever. And so you learn how to navigate very delicate political environment. So when it comes to running a business, this is like, well, this is easy. Yeah. And so it's very natural at some level to do that. So that's my theory around was it. Was there like a particular formative experience in your childhood or when you grew up? Um, a number of them, um, I come from a diplomatic family, so there's a lot of foreign service ambassadors. My uncle was the Indian ambassador to the U.S., and so we had a lot of political figures coming through our house uh, quite often. Um, but I think probably at uh, when I went to university uh, in, in Canada, I wasn't supposed to get in, and I got in through luck. Um, and uh, I, re I realized that if you just take a chance, things can happen. And so then, uh, since then, I've not been scared of taking a chance. Uh, and it's become the dominant, uh, and it, that's how entrepreneurs succeed, right? You take a chance. And I, I don't come from an entrepreneurship family at all, but I've become good at it just because I, I'm not scared to take chances. That's very interesting. Did you, did you ever feel like, because you didn't come from an entrepreneurial family, uh, that it limited you in some way before you realized, okay, it doesn't really matter? No, because you, you don't know what you don't know, right? So my father was an engineer. And my mother was a diplomat, and I thought I should go and becoming an engineer. So that was my initial plan. Uh, I failed out of engineering. Um, I then finished my degree in theoretical physics um, because it was less work. Uh, and so I did it for those reasons. Then I got into computing, and I've been doing that. Uh, I did that for a long time. And how, how was your time in university? Like I hated it. Okay. I hated it because uh, I went to what's called a co-op program, where you study for four months and you work for four months. When you're doing uh, academic studies and you're working every four months, you realize very, very quickly that 
what you do at work has no relation to what you study. Zero. And so it's very demotivating to try and study when you have no, you know that it has nothing to do with, with the real world. And so it, it became very frustrating. And so I couldn't wait to get out. So I was a terrible student. Um, uh, but I was very good at the work. And so when I got out, it was a, a much more fruitful environment. So when you got out, how did you think about your future? I thought I was going to do computer architecture and build computer systems. And I did that for five years, building large-scale systems for banks and insurance companies. But then I got frustrated because you build this amazing system for a bank, and it never gets deployed because the people have, are, not, are not using it. And the, the discipline of change management didn't exist. And so I got into, I moved from that into management consulting. It would help companies deploy uh, technology, but more importantly, help prepare the organization for it. And so we would go into companies, this was in, mostly in Europe, and say, you're all looking at technology and IT as a cost. You should be looking at it as a strategic investment. And so when you can tilt that way, it becomes very interesting. So I did that for a few years. Is, is there a story that sort of embodies that type of work and why you like that? Um, you know, uh, when you can make a huge difference with technology, it's kind of profound to watch what happens. And we restructured... An insurance company in France called Groupama, which is the biggest mutual company there, and it was fascinating to see when they deployed technology properly, how quickly it rippled through the organization and the benefits they got from it. So that was very inspiring to see. Uh, the counterpoint was that the French hate change, you know, and so trying to implement it. And I remember talking to the CEO and I said, "Your people are a nightmare. Why are the French so hard to work with?" And he said. The French will say it works in theory, but does it works in practice? But will it work in theory? As the best description ever, that explains French the French people completely. So, how have you been dealing with people when you have this sense of innovation and this drive, and you deal with people who don't have that, and they sort of they guard the status mm. quo? Great question. Uh, what we do, and and this is the, I think the secret behind Singularity University, is when people come in, whatever defenses they have. Uh, the combination of kind of sh uh, new technologies plus shock and awe plus the reality of what's happening breaks down your defenses. You kind of go, yeah, that, that may happen, but it can't happen to me. And then you realize, holy shit, that's going to happen to me. And now you're open to kind of thinking, not only can I think a different way, but I have no choice but to think a different way. I have to do it. And so our ideal is when people come through a program like this and they leave thinking, I have to think a different way. I don't have a choice. And so that's kind of the model that we use to open people up with technological thinking, then kind of guide them through a thinking process and a developmental process mentally that then has them inspired to go use the technologies properly. Was it a turning point when you were young that sort of changed your thinking and, and made you more effective at what you wanted to do? Uh, probably when I learned how to do programming. I was, I was uh, about 15 years old, and in our high school, they gave us Apple IIs, and we, I started to learn how to program. And the empowerment that you get from being able to write code and making the computer do what you do is incredibly powerful. And you see the same equivalent today with kids that learn how to do 3D printing. They imagine an object, they draw it, and boom, it gets spun out. It's, an, it's, it's instant an, feedback. It's an unbelievable, powerful, uh, uh, um, um, uh, kind of empowering tool. And you never forget that. You never forget, wow, I can do that. Uh, and so th that never leaves you. And so I remember that being a very fundamental point. And how has you, your relation to technology changed throughout your life? Um, I kind of was very involved in computing early on. Then I went into the people side of it and building, uh, um, doing change management in big companies. Then I got into entrepreneurship. 
uh, I built one of the I built a predecessor to Twitter, for example, in New York City, and I tried my hand at doing that, and it was very very hard, uh, especially in New York, trying to build an internet company. Um, uh, uh, but then when I came across, then I joined Yahoo to do be the head of innovation at Yahoo, um, and I found that was maybe the central lesson I found when you try and do disruptive innovation in a big organization, the immune system will come and attack you. Because all of our organizations are built to resist change. And now we're saying that's the high order bit. Right? So dealing with that juxtaposition is very, very difficult. And I found it very hard at Yahoo. And I realized that you cannot use a big company to make do radical change. It has to be an entrepreneur. It has to be a startup. Um, I'd set up a relationship between Yahoo and NASA to do interesting projects together. And the NASA people one day said, hey, we're helping found Singularity. We're getting 70 thought leaders together uh, for a founding conference. Do you want to come? I'd never heard of the Singularity. I'd never heard of Ray Kurzweil. I'd never heard of Peter Diamandis or the X Prize. Walked in completely blank, and I asked a few too many questions of how are you going to manage all this. And about two weeks later, the Peter and the board said, "You want to run it." Um, so I got home that day. My wife, I remember, was saying, "How was your day?" And I said, "I think I'm a dean. I don't know how that happens, but I'm a dean." <laughs> how did that um, feel? Uh, pretty surreal because I was not qualified, right? Uh, but you realize in entrepreneurship that there's no such thing as qualified. You just do. And I'm really good at starting and launching things. So I said, I'll help you through the launch. Uh, and then Peter and the board said, we we're very happy. Just keep going. What, what is the most important truth you've realized throughout your life that make you more effective at starting startups? Um, da just dance with the possibility of what's... And don't, for, don't lose the vision of what's possible. Keep that in your head at all times. You're dealing with day-to-day -day stupidity, right? NASA regulations, and we're running out of money here... Uh, Etc. And it's very easy to get lose, get stuck in that. But if you can maintain the, the the distant vision of what you're trying to achieve, which in our case is to transform leadership globally, um, and then reverse engineer, and then reverse and step back and say, okay, that's a nightmare issue. We may never be able to solve that. But if we can't solve that, we're not getting there. And so it gives you the passion and the uh, drive to keep going against stupid odds, which you would never do if you knew beforehand. Right? No entrepreneur knows beforehand what he's up against, otherwise they would never do it. And so you have a very like interdisciplinary approach where you, you take from very different fields um, yes. of knowledge. Like, How do you make sure you stay focused and you leverage sort of that renaissance man? Um, I think by default I have that just from coming from different geographies. I have the kind of appreciation for Eastern philosophy and dealing with change and kind of the Hindu or Buddhist approach to the world, along with the Western analytical discipline. And so that's very powerful on both sides. I found that to be very useful in my, in my life. Um, uh, and I, I, when I, you read uh, the uh, trigger point you were asking earlier about turning points was when I was studying uh, quantum mechanics in physics. And I, and I was at the same time doing a, a course in uh, Buddhism. And required reading for both courses was the same book. And I was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? And you realize that quantum mechanics at the edges is exactly the same as Buddhist thinking. And you think, well, that's kind of weird. And I started really thinking about the metaphysics and the philosophy behind that. Uh, and so I actually teach that at Singularity. Uh, we, uh, for, you know, when you look, take the implications of biotech, robotics, AI, neuroscience, it changes the fundamentals of what life will become. And so you start asking really big questions about why are we here? Uh, how will this all work? And so you get lost in those questions. And so we found that the students were kind of halfway through each course about halfway through, after the, all of the implications sink in, they're kind of like, holy crap, Like, what does this mean? And you can't practically apply them until you kind of solve that question. Right? And so I do a late night session for all of our students 
uh, alcohol mandatory about halfway through each course, executive program as well as our summer programs, where we get to and go, what is the meaning of life? And so I lead a discussion around that that typically goes anywhere from four to nine hours. Um, Can you tell me more about that course? It's, very it's not a course, but it's just a discussion I lead. I'm fascinated by the idea that we live in a world that is completely predicated on growth or improvement or progress or evolution. Right? We have no idea by, by how does that happen? How does growth take place? What are the steps? And so I've spent a lot of time analyzing the archetypal patterns that, that enable any growth to take place. And, and it roughly goes as follows. You have a stable environment. Uh, some external or internal force will break that equilibrium. You have a very dynamic period, and then it will consolidate again to a new level. Right? So an artist with a block of marble, the, the sculpture is all potential. There's no reality to it. Now they'll start chipping away. I could make the wrong chip and break the marble. But mm -hmm. unless I take that risk and go into that uncertain pattern, I won't realize my potential. Then it's fully formed. Now it's, now it's static. Now it's realized. And so you could think of it as uh, potential to kinetic energy in one sense or um, unknown to the known. And that kind of repeatable cycle through everything. In the stock market, we're talking about finance here, you have a stock market chart. A stock will consolidate. There'll be some announcement or positive or negative, you'll have the, a dynamic uncertain period and then you'll consolidate it at mm. a new price, right? And so you see this archetypal pattern in all of life. Um, like equilibrium, disequilibrium. Equilibrium, dis growth pattern or decay pattern and then equilibrium again and it's a cyclical fractal thing. And so I kind of talk through that underlying pattern and then we apply it to different areas. For example, falling in love is that uncertainty thing. Getting married is the formalization of it. If you're going through school, you you go through learning, 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 exam. Learning, 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 exam. And that consolidates the learning, and then you go to the next level. And this it doesn't matter, and there's infinity at each level, at each end, because you can just keep learning. But the process is archetypal, it happens everywhere. A snake will grow and then shed its skin, and grow and shed its skin. And so we're finding, uh, finding that archetypal pattern exists everywhere in, in the world. In, uh, social structures, economic structures, biological structures, etc. So we talk through that, and then we say, how do you apply this? And the challenges that then exist to our existing institutions, right? You take, you know, we talk about um, the volatility of what's happening in the world. We have big threats to all of our old institutions. Like the institution of marriage uh, was created about 15,000 years ago. And, and average lifespan was like 22. So you got married, you had kids, you died. Right. No marriage was designed the last 60 years. I joke that it's now essentially state-sanctioned torture uh, because we're not actually meant to be with one person for that long. You might as well uh, I'm happily married, by the way, so please don't tell my wife. Um, but, but this challenge is all of our old institutions, right? Or if we think about extreme longevity, where we might break the aging barrier in the next couple of decades, well, most religions, their business model is to sell an afterlife. Right? They're not going to be very happy about this. And so we're going to start to see all of these institutions that we thought were, were kind of fixed and never changing all completely wither and disappear. I actually have seen this in physics. Um, if you look at any constant in physics, the speed of light, etc., when you get close to analyzing it, you find it's not really a constant. And you find, oh my God, the speed of light is variable, like what the hell. And so every time we think we've hit up against a solid barrier, we find it's not really solid. And so from a philosophical and metaphysical perspective, I find that particularly fascinating. What else has, has structured your thinking um, in a way that takes in all these different philosophies? Uh, maybe, the, maybe the human subconscious. 
is the most profound. So we have a soul that kind of is helping guide who somebody is. You have the surface level. So I'll, I'll give you the analogy of you have a body and you have um, a, physical in, a physical reality with your cells. Uh, when you're growing up, you create an emotional operating system that interfaces with the outside world. Right? And then you run applications on that operating system, love life, career, sports, finance, uh, uh, etc. Um, and the applications crash now and then. You know, your love life fails, your career fails, whatever. And you think it's the application. We never go back and look at the operating system. This is why the Jesuits will say, give me the boy until the age of seven, I'll give you the men. If you can wire the operating system, religions work this way. A religion takes a young child uh, before their neocortex fully formed, so they don't have advanced thinking. Then you give them a set of absolute assumptive truths, like Jesus is the son of God, Mary is a virgin, Muhammad is the last prophet, whatever. And then you use repetition and ritual and a lot of sweets to bind it into the kid. Right? And then the neocortex forms. And then you can't unwire it. If it's provoked, you evoke a fight-or-flight response after that. And you can't unwind. This is why religions are so successful. It's the ultimate marketing, in my opinion. And so I'm fascinated by the fact that, okay, how do you now go and re-engineer the, the uh, subconscious and the layer in people? Now, we figured that out for people. We have now figured that out. We can use neuro-linguistic programming and uh, behavioral therapies and, and, and biotech feedback loops, et cetera, to do this. Now the challenge is how do we do that for our institutions? Because our institutions have just as old of an, the same type of immune system, uh, which is what I found when I tried to do this at Yahoo. I recently was asked by the Vatican to come uh, and talk there because they've got the oldest immune system in the world. And as Pope Francis is trying to change things, he's struggling with the pushback from this old system. And so all of our, we have to actually solve that problem in all of our existing institutions. And I find that structure is kind of a particularly important one for how to navigate progress in a general way of any kind. How, how would you define progress? Um, typically, the, the form, formulation of a new structure that gives you lots of new possibilities. Um, I, I, uh, so progress for me is, is uh, opening up possibility for people or for things. Um, if I have autonomous cars, I'm much more flexible, I have much more freedom of, of space, time, and money. And so typically, you have in, you gain independence of either space or time or money in one of those. If we break through the aging barrier, then we'll gain a lot of time. We used to think that was it. We had the X amount of time, and that's we had the. Now we find maybe we can break through that. Or if I can, if I can watch TV and work at the same time, or consume social media, I'm doubling up the time, right? So, uh, and with uh, uh, connectivity and virtual conferencing, video conferencing. I have space independence. And so all of the dimensions that we thought were physical constraints, technology allows us to break through that. And so uh, I've, I love, Ray frames it as technology is the major, maybe the biggest, uh, we always know that technology is a major driver of progress. Uh, we argue that maybe it's the only major driver of progress that we've ever seen. And now we have a dozen technologies all accelerating in their own right. That's why we're so excited about the world, right? We've We've had computation as a single technology, but now it's enabling biotech and AI and robotics and neuroscience. We have a dozen technologies now accelerating in their own price performance. But as each of them accelerates and intersects, at their intersection point, that adds a whole other multiplier to the equation. So we're incredibly excited about where the world goes. Uh, one way we frame it is in the 1500s, we had the Gutenberg moment, and the printing press changed everything. And today, it's like we're having like 30 of those at the same time. And the big challenge is how does society absorb that 
pace of change. We are not set up to absorb that pace of change. And that concerns me maybe more than anything. Why does it concern you? Well, if you think about every single mechanism that we used to run the world, our civics, our politics, our legal systems, healthcare, intellectual property, education, all designed for a world a few hundred years ago. Yeah. Not for today. Definitely not for a trillion censors coming down the pike. Uh, as, as basic a thing as democracy, we invented representative democracy when information was scarce. If you're in Washington, D.C., you had no idea what was happening in California because the speed of a horse was as fast as you knew. It took days to get across the country. So you had a representative come and represent the views. Now we have an abundance of information. But democracy doesn't work in this world. There's too much of abundance of information that can be misused in different places. And so now it slows us down. And we have to figure out what does a post-democratic future look like. My family was very involved in the independence movement in India. It's great that it's a democracy, but in 60 years, no infrastructure has been laid down because you devolve into short-term high-metabolism election cycles, and then you're done. Right? And so we have some pretty big structural issues to deal with. We don't know how to solve it yet, but we'll figure it out. As Winston Churchill said, uh, democracy is the worst form of government <laughs> except for everything else. Right? We've probably been that far. Yeah. So, so I grew up. I grew up in Germany, and I've always been fascinated by the American Revolution, where the founding fathers came, and it was sort of like a clean state, and they built a new political operating system. Yeah. And it wasn't perfect. There was slavery. Yeah. It was. I, I can only imagine what it must have been like to to be like live at that, that time, and 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 be part of that narrative, and and. They, they really created a new operating system yeah. that showed possibilities, that created a new sense of liberty. Yeah. And, and you know, you say, you say like, that's like, sort of those are preconditions that are necessary sort of to, like, leapfrog to the new world of abundance, right? Yeah. And, and right now, um, I don't see that in any country. I see it in these networks of young people and people like Singularity, and, and that's super exciting. Yeah. But... but but where is the do we need a blank state or is sort of the technology of the blockchain and, and other related technologies enough to sort of create the same sense of the new world? I think not just enough, I think it would be necessary. Because if you think about countries, they're by definition scarcity based because of the geographic limitation, right? You have boundaries and you have borders and then you try and protect that scarcity. All of our institutions and businesses in the past are about managing scarcity. Um, now we have kind of an abundance in a globalized world. In, certainly in energy, we can see that coming. We can see an education coming. Information used to be scarce, and now it's abundant. And our existing structures can't deal with it. So we have to create new structures. The new structures will not fit into the old. You can't wedge them into the old. So you have to walk away from the geopolitical environment and move to a blockchain, Bitcoin-based thing. I, I've been fascinated to see some of the efforts out of Germany, like liquid democracy, that kind of try and hack the system. But that's even a kind of a halfway, uh, a quarter way point. But we have to kind of go to a whole other level. I think I, I, one of the reasons I'm excited by the blockchain, and I, I've kind of publicly said a few times, I think it's the most disruptive technology I've ever seen, um, is that it'll enable a whole new form of organization uh, and uh, human interaction that will completely change everything. And I'm unbelievably excited about the potential of that. So from your perspective, um, when you look at technology, what do you think society is missing or is not valuing enough? Uh, I think the, the big, I have two big issues. The first is the awareness that, tech, that technology is moving so fast, right? Our existing political structures are not, all of our leadership structures, business but especially political, are set up for a stable status quo incremental world, not this very disruptive world that we're in. So that's issue one. And is, issue two is, 
even if we know that pace of change, the feedback loop is not there. If you look at most public policy, in fact, almost all public policies determine reactively and defensively. Almost all, right? And so when we now have to figure out how to get in front of that and say, okay, so you take drones. There's unbelievable public good that could come from drones. Um, but our, the first action is by the FAA to say, let's ban it. Now, a bad actor is not going to listen to that anyway. And all you do is stop all the positive use cases, right? And so we have to get out of the... And it's so easy to go to the politics of fear, which is what we see in the U.S. unbelievably today. Um, uh, by the way, the U.S. is not a functioning democracy of any kind today. Probably you're aware of that. Very few people <laughs> are. I mean, in no way, shape, or form. And, and so you have to actually figure out new mechanisms around this. And it will not happen in the existing structures. You, can't, you take the existing, let's say, education. Right? We have two big issues with education. One is that it's geared to create kids for the job market, uh, whereas so we don't know what a job looks like in five years, so what the hell are we teaching them? That's issue one. And issue two is we do education in a very classic 300-year-old push basis. You get kids into a classroom and you try and cram algebra into them. They're mostly thinking about lunch. Uh, we have such a much more understanding of pedagogical techniques, neural retention patterns, challenge-based learning, customized learning pathways, and we don't use any of that in our existing systems. And you can't fix the existing system. It's too stuck in teachers' unions, textbook publishers, regulatory framework, and Texas creationists here in the U.S. Uh, we have to create completely new models on the side and then and let those become the new gravity center, yeah. which is what we're trying to do with the model of a university the model of a university hasn't changed in about 450 years, and so we're trying to create a new model for that and let people gravitate to it if they think the model works. So that's what we need to kind of encourage to do with our institutions. And this operates even at the globalized level. You take something like the, I don't know, the UN Security Council. It was set up to govern conflicts between states. But today, 80% of war is within states, civil war in Syria, wherever. And the UN Security Council has no teeth. They have no, nothing to say about that. So it's irrelevant. But how do you, there's no end date. There was a fantastic proposal in Germany to say, whenever we create a new law, put an end date on the law and force the parliament to re Like a sunset it. clause. Yeah, a sunset clause. Yeah, you absolutely have to have that. So there's some feedback loops and end dates that we don't have, and if we don't, we're not iterating quickly And it's enough. very difficult to get rid of existing laws. Very difficult. Right? And, and then you, the intellectual property is a classic example of how screwed up that is. And so we need much better um, uh, feedback me mechanisms that mimic what's actually happening in the real world. Yeah. During the American Revolution, um, what, what separated sort of the new world from the old world was, you know, an entire ocean. Yeah. Um, and it seems now, like, you know, that the Treaty of Westphalia, sort of, which is the origin of the um, nation state, um, that's sort of the current political opera system. And it, yeah. It hasn't really evolved. And if you look at the current political landscape, especially in the U.S., like, you know, it used to be that um, if you if you want to be part of politics, you, ha you would have to like advance political thought, and yeah. and and that's not the case anymore. No. Um, and so, where do you, where do you see sort of sort of the new? And we talked about this already, but where do you see sort of the new form arising? Uh, because I feel like it's almost like we're a prisoner of that that system of nation state. Yeah. Um, and they have still have so much power, and you know, we're slowly moving into more decentralized and autonomous. Uh, Systems, but it, it just take autonomous driving, which I heard Elon Musk saying is like two two years away from like really yeah. fully working everywhere, yes. Yes. like even in like really unlikely uh, scenarios. Yeah. But then uh, that's not enough because regulation 
So two things I think will happen with political thinking, okay? The first is we're going to de-emphasize the nation state, and we're seeing a much more increased emphasis on city states. Um, London in the UK is like 60% of the UK. Nobody really sees the rest of it. Um, a great example is New York City. Everybody in the world knows who the mayor of New York City is. Nobody in the world knows who the governor of New York State is. Even in New York, you have no idea who the governor is, right? And so there, we're seeing this very increased emphasis of city-states and a de-emphasis of nation-states, and I think that's one of the fundamental dynamic. And a big city today, like Sao Paulo, Mexico City, Tokyo, is more complex than any country was 100 years ago. And so that's one dynamic that I think is going to continue as we urbanize the world. The second dynamic, I think, is the blockchain uh, revolution, where we can kind of now layer uh, regulatory frameworks, governmental frameworks, voting mechanisms on the blockchain, and lift off the geographical constraint. And unfortunately, you have to be under 20 years old to understand it. Um, like anybody in, in 30 or above is toast in trying to figure this out. It's almost like you can't legally program in, the, in Bitcoin unless you're un, under 20. Um, uh, the, that will, I think, enable a whole new liquidity of thought that will be very, very exciting, and I can't wait to see what comes from that. I, we tend to be incredibly optimistic about the world, as you might guess, um, but we have some very big hurdles. We think there's a fundamental transition of about a 20-year period where we shift the world from scarcity to abundance, and that, that interim 20-year period will be very, very volatile as we undo the old structures and kind of create new structures along the way. It's the biggest inflection point in civilization, in our opinion. So I'd be also curious to get your thoughts on, on the Silicon Valley mindset. So the past yeah. year, I, I worked in, in San Francisco, and it's, it's, it's such a magical place, and it changed me in so many ways that it's difficult to explain to people who never lived there in the Bay Area. Yeah. And it's so amazing. But at the same time, that mindset that grows from, from, that, from that geographical area, it's confined to like a small area. And if you look at the world today, not everybody can move there, and yeah. not everybody's American, and uh, you know visa problems, and 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 it's also not feasible for everyone to live in one city. Yeah. And if you then look at autonomous and decentralization, do you see it's already happening that um, that that sort of that mindset is exported everywhere, somewhere else? I mean, I look at oh. other places like New York, Boston, Tel Aviv, Berlin. Yeah. And it's already happening, but yes. do you think that's only growing and becoming stronger? So, like, basically, you have multiple routers in the world yes. to sort of support that mindset. Yes, I think exactly right. I think it started in Silicon Valley because you had freedom of thought, and also that you were um, um, far away from political centers. So you could kind of think freely, etc. And then it grew up. It started there. What's then happened is, it's, if you stand up in in your hometown, anywhere in the world. Germany or me in Canada or India and I say I'm going to change the world the rest of society pulls you back down because they say who the hell are you to do this in Silicon Valley they're unique in saying how do you plan on doing it okay. uh, and, and, and the way I like to frame it is I don't like this failure thing but I think what, what unique about Silicon Valley is failure is called experience and there's a little story I think that highlights it I have a friend who's had seven failed startups in a row and number eight is a billion dollar company so seven failed startups, number eight. And now nowhere else in the world would that happen. Okay? And I went to his investors as I was researching the book. And I said, look, he failed five times and you funded him on number six and number seven. Why? He's failed five times in a row. You're pretty damn likely he's going to fail number six. And he did. And then you funded him for number seven. And he did. And why did you fund him on number eight? And they said, look, 
One thing we know about that guy, he will never stop. That guy is never going to stop, and we want to be there when he succeeds. Because it's how many cracks at the piñata do you get? Mm. And that mindset, that guy would never get more than twice uh, failed anywhere else in the world. Then they would say, forget it, you're useless, right? That mindset is unique to Silicon Valley. We see that being exported around the world, Berlin, etc. A great example is Startup Chile, where they've created a completely magical startup environment out of nothing in like five years. Completely amazing. And so as we see that kind of seeding around the world, we think that now a pace of innovation just starts to explode because that mindset starts to take hold and that drives everything going forward. So if you think that everything starts with thinking and a thought and then yeah. it goes towards action. Yeah. If you think about platforms that move thinking forward, yeah. that enable people to realize their dreams and to give them possibilities, like what, what do you see some, some like applications of, of platforms, of people already doing that, or like other, other things you imagine that uh, people maybe haven't done yet? Well, I mean, look at the two things that we know clearly. Google allows you to find anything in the world. Facebook allows you to connect with anything in the world. Okay? So as you look at the internet, which A, first connected all the computers, then we started adding data layers. First, what's happening or what uh, information about products was the first thing which Google gives you, inf or information about libraries, etc. We put the world's knowledge on the internet. Facebook allows you to put the world's people on the internet and connect all them together. Now we have uh, geolocation and we know where everything is in the world. And every time you add a layer, you enable a whole set of applications between those layers. Mm. It's one thing knowing that there's a bar over there. It's a second thing knowing that I know you. Mm. Now I can say, hey, whenever you're near a bar and within half a kilometer, let's go have a glass of wine. Right? So there's a whole new application possible. Now I know that now when I can add your biology and electronic health record to that, plus you add to who, what else is happening around the area. There's a great band nearby or whatever. Each layer we add, Internet of Things, etc., will just explode that to the next level. We'll start to see more and more applications become enabled. So the next set of applications or layers, uh, platforms that I think will be, A, transportation with Uber, clearly trying to go down the platform route with being an enabler on that, Amazon doing drones for deliveries, etc. Once you can move anything around freely with low cost, now you anything becomes possible, right? As Brad puts it, I could have a... A, a company say, hey, I'll deliver an extra bedroom to your house in 30 minutes, not just a pizza. Right? And so really interesting what ha might happen there. We liquidize, we liquefy now assets and access to anything. Then you add on top of that virtual reality, which now gives access to people's minds, and now your brain explodes. And what about, what about mobility and thought? Uh, in light of all these people who are unconnected to the internet, all these unbanked people who, you know, when I grew up, like, you know, my, my, my parents are immigrants and I didn't grow up with a lot of money and uh, often you're like the prisoner of your own thinking. Yeah. And how can we help those people to, to really escape from their own prison? Especially, you know, you talked about change and it's so difficult to change someone else, like let alone change yourself. Oh yeah. But it's, how can you build sort of this platform that shows people those possibilities? That, that they can then sort of go forth and, and f have more liberty at, at what they want to do and where everybody's sort of the CEO of their own life. Uh, well, th this enables everything because as anybody see over their own life, it starts to become really profoundly possible. That it, look at uh, Elon Musk. Okay, today anybody can enter a legacy industry with a beginner's mind, leverage new technologies, and totally disrupt the status quo. He has no experience in energy, space, or cars, and he's created market leaders in all of them. That now becomes possible in any industry in any geography. 
right? And so when you enable that with that younger generation and that mindset, and you have role models like Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Peter Diamandis, and others, now anything's possible. And now you kind of inspire that next generation to totally go crazy. And we see that with the Bitcoin kids and others, where they're free of older thinking. Our big challenge is not the innovation. Our big challenge is how do we effectively absorb that in the rest of society and transition that. And actually, that's where the media, I think, plays the biggest role, because the formation and the use of narrative is the most powerful technique we have of taking somebody from one frame of thought and moving them to the next. We're biologically geared for that type of thinking. And I think the media now has a really, really important role to play. We typically tend to see it as a dystopian outcome because of Hollywood technology takes over and you have the robots or the AI that takes over Skynet or the Matrix. And if you're lucky, we're pets. If we're unlucky, we're food, right? Basically, it's good. But if you can kind of transition that and say, listen, we can use technology to augment and amplify the human experience, and we have an abundance of resources, et cetera, you now have a Star Trek type of utopian environment. And we think that's where the world will get to. It's either that or Skynet. And so hopefully we'll end up in the first and the other. So, so two final questions. Yeah. Um, if you could have dinner with anyone in history, who would you have dinner with and why? Dinner with anybody in history. Just one? My God. Well, pick, well you can pick multiple people. Okay, want. multiple would be Newton. Um, Galileo probably would be... No, sorry, uh, Da Vinci. Da Vinci would probably be number one on the technology side. We think he was the original 